I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, exactly 100 years ago, in February 1922, a brainstorming session took place in the Gresham Hotel in Dublin over the course of a number of weeks. The objective was to put shape on a new police force for what was then a nascent free state. Michael Collins attended the first meeting on the 9th of February and while he kept an eye on what developed, he had a lot of other things on his plate at the time. Richard Mulcahy was also present, as was Dáil Deputy Michael Staines, who went on to be the first commissioner of Ungarda Síochána. So how did they fashion the model of what the new police force was to look like? Did it have a distinctive aspect that reflected a new state or was it largely just copied from the model for the outgoing force at the time, the RIC? And I suppose the bigger question is how exactly did the new Garda force get on over the following 100 years? Joining me today to discuss the history of Garda Síochána in its centenary year is Conor Brady, who's former editor of the Irish Times, a former chair of the Garda Ombudsman Commission and Fado Fado, in the shallows of his career, he actually edited Garda Review. Connor, you're very welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Michael. Connor, you recently wrote a piece there about the centenary in the Irish Times under the headline, Fateful Decisions Made 100 Years Ago Have Defined the Garda Today. What did they decide that defined exactly how policing in the new state would be conducted? Well, your intro there, Mick, has given the context, if you like, the political context. Uh, it's worth re- just sketching it out again very briefly. Um, Please, yeah. You had uh, you had a country which had come through almost five years of violence and crime. Uh, and one of the, uh, I suppose, one of the prime targets, if not the prime target of the campaign for independence was to destroy the uh, old police force, the Royal Irish Constabulary, which had been established 100 years previously um, by, uh, by Thomas Drummond, um, uh, then, then Secretary for Ireland. Uh, the, the, the Irish Constabulary, which was later restyled the Royal Irish Constabulary for its effectiveness in putting down the Fenian Rising of 1867, it was effectively uh, it was the it was the strong right hand through which the Dublin Castle administration uh, controlled Ireland. Uh, it was a supremely efficient, disciplined, well trained, well armed, well resourced uh, police gendarmerie in the in the in the in the continental sense of the word. It was destroyed consciously uh, and 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 with considerable strategic wisdom. Uh, by Michael Collins and the leaders of the um, of the revolution, uh, they knew that if you took out the RIC, everything else would follow. But of course, it then left a vacuum, and when the new state had to be formed, um, there was no policing machine available. There was a rudimentary thing called the Irish Republican Police, which was 
supposedly part of the IRA. It was largely non-functional throughout most of the country. Um, Dublin, of course, continued to have the old Dublin Metropolitan Police, an unarmed urban police force in the classic Victorian tradition. But all of rural Ireland, and by that I include this, the regional towns and the big cities, Cork, Galway, Waterford, Limerick, they were without a policing system. So they had to create a new police force and they had to do it fairly quickly. So that's what brought that group together in the Gresham Hotel, as you have correctly said, on the 9th of February 19, uh, 1922. Initial meeting chaired by Michael Collins. Um, number of those present, as you've described them, yes, uh, Rishthard Mulcahy. Um, and Michael Staines, who was to be the first commissioner of the new force, a Doyle TD himself, but also, interestingly, the son of an RIC man. As were a number of major figures in the revolution, the likes of Tom Barry as well, and, uh, well, Sean O'Fallon wasn't a major figure. He yeah. became a major writer, but that ran through a lot. Um, and I suppose the model... Connor, that was set up uh, was very centralised and the crucial aspect to it was that it retained the the security of the state yes. function yes. which was to define it and we've even seen debate about that right up to today but at the time um, doing anything else I'd say would have been highly controversial on the basis that there was brewing the prospect of a civil war even then I think uh I think there probably wasn't much thought given to any alternatives. Uh, I made the point in the piece that the Irish Times that you referred to, uh, you know, that here you had a group of young men, most of them, many of them not out of their 20s and most of them still in their 30s or early 30s, presented with the prospect of creating a new state out of chaos. Um, so the easiest thing to do and the, I suppose the, the default position for many institutions was simply to say, well, look, Let's look at what the British have left us and see, can we convert it to our own purposes? For example, the British left behind a very efficiently functioning post office. Why, why, would, why would an Irish government not just simply pick it up? So they painted the pillar boxes green instead of red, and in time they issued their own stamps. I think much the same happened with the police. Uh, Collins had a profound admiration for the RIC, as indeed anybody who came up against them. They were a formidable force. And they displayed extraordinary qualities of resilience and courage um, and an ability to withstand uh, a campaign of extreme violence against them. Um, they, they never really lost their discipline. Um, they, they, there were excesses, of course, but they were almost, almost 100% uh, conducted by members of the auxiliary force who were not true RIC in the, in the, in the full sense of the word. Um, Collins had a huge admiration for the RIC. In that group who came together in the um, in the Gresham, there were perhaps a dozen former RIC men who had actually been working for Collins and who had been loyal to Collins uh, during the War of Independence. Logically, Collins said, we want to form a police force. Who do we have? Who knows about how a police force is run? So he sent for these men. Um, they ranged in rank from uh, County D District Inspector Walsh in Letterkenny, who was a, quite a senior officer, right down to numbers of, of ranking constables and sergeants. There were one or two from the Dublin Metropolitan Police as well. But basically, the only people in that room who knew anything about policing or about how to organise a, a, a police unit were basically former RIC people. Uh, and it was inevitable, I guess, 
that they would look to what they were familiar with, what they understood, and said, okay, let's do this. Um, uh, so the original concept was a force which would replicate the RIC uh, in its broadly in its numbers, in its ranking system, in its divisional boundaries, in its disciplinary code, and also, and this is crucially important, in that it would be armed in exactly the same way as the Royal Irish Constabulary with the Webley revolver, um, the Lee Enfield rifle, uh, or the Lee Metford rifle, uh, the short bayonet and the baton. So it was basically uh, reinventing the RIC. They said, OK, we're going to change the colour of the uniform. So they went from bottle green to blue and they changed the ranks, the nomenclature. So district inspectors became superintendents, county inspectors became chief superintendents, um, head constables became inspectors. The badges changed. The RIC had a badge which was had the shamrock, the harp and the crown. That was gone. And the Celtic sunburst, um, which we now know as the Garda badge, uh, was designed by a, a teacher in Black Rock College by the name of Maxwell, who got three pounds for the, for the, for his trouble in, in in making the design, and it's still with us today. So really, it was it was initially the plan was look, let's put in a new force, let's get the old guys out. That the RIC were all paid off, uh, they got very good retirement benefits. The idea was to recruit as many as possible, mainly ex IRA. Ninety seven percent of the initial recruits were ex IRA. Thirty percent of them were ex column men. Um, and basically it was out with the old, in with the new, but using basically the template which had been put in place 100 years ago by, by Thomas Drummond. No, as you say, Connor, at that stage they were armed and a lot of people have the impression that from the word go, the Gardaí were not armed. When did that change? Well, it's a very interesting story um, and it's, it, it, it's a very interesting insight, if you like, into the I suppose that we think spin doctors and um, and handlers um, are a phenomenon of, of relatively modern government. They weren't. This is a very good example of spin doctoring at a very early stage. Um, the guards initially, when they were when recruited under Commissioner Staines, they had no headquarters. The RSC was still in the depot in, in the Phoenix Park. So initially, um, the guards were billeted in uh, the old artillery barracks in Kildare Town. Uh, that was their their training depot. However, they there was a significant proportion of those who were brought in uh, for initial training as guards who actually were opposed to the treaty. And when when the when the civil war basically broke out into the open in 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 the in June nineteen twenty two, with the shelling of the four courts, a lot of the members of the original Garda who were anti-treaty decided to switch sides, as it were. And they did endeavour to uh, swing the guards over to the side of the anti-treaty forces. Now, that would have been, if they had succeeded in that, it would have been a considerable fighting force. You're talking about nearly 2,000 armed men, well-armed, um, well-trained. These were these were IRA veterans, as I say. 30% of them were column men who had been out fighting on the hills, uh, and in the countryside, bringing that armed force over to the side uh, of the anti-treaty forces would have been a considerable uh, boost to the anti-treaty forces and a considerable threat to the provisional government. 
So they did. They mutinied in, the, in, in Kildare. They drove out Commissioner Staines and his senior staff. There was also an element of resentment, genuine resentment and anger at the fact that so many senior jobs had gone to RIC. Men. Now, there weren't that many. The new force was going to have almost 200 superintendents, for example, and about six of those were given to the RIC. But this was very much resented by the, by the, uh, by the, the, the I, former IRA men who felt that they should get the promotional jobs. Um, uh, much of the focus in the barracks focused on, on, on a certain former district inspector, Kearney, who was the RIC inspector who had arrested Roger Casement uh, in, 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 in Kerry on Banna Strand in 1916. Now, Kearney, in fact, made every possible attempt he could to get, to get Casement free. And it was the ineptitude of the local IRA um, which consigned Casement uh, to Dublin and onto the Tower of London where he was executed. But Kearney was actually, did his damnedest. He li- literally left the back door of the barracks open and said, come in, take him, but they wouldn't. Um, but a lot of hostility focused on Kearney. Anyway, long story short, they mutinied, they threw out the existing commissioner and his staff. Uh, and uh, of course, the provisional government had to deal with this. There were negotiations, um, an army detachment was sent down with an armoured car. There was an armed standoff at the gates of, uh, of the military barracks, the artillery barracks. Eventually, Kevin O'Higgins, uh, who was then the Minister for Home Affairs, Kevin O'Higgins went down um, in person, as he said, carrying a box load of money, which was pay, which was owed to the recruits. And basically, between a combination of threat, promise and cajoling, they agreed uh, that the um, the anti-treaty element left. They pulled out. They went away and they joined the anti-treaty forces. There weren't that many guards left in uh, in 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 uh, in Kildare. There was about a thousand of them. Uh, the The arrangement was then made that they would be transferred to Collinstown, to the airdrome at Collinstown, which is the location of the present day Dublin Airport. That would now become their next training place before they would actually move into the depot in the Phoenix Park. They moved to Collinstown uh, in lorries, a thousand men. Their weapons and their equipment were put into separate lorries. And when they got to Collinstown, they were billeted for the night in the barracks. They woke up in the morning. There was no sign of their weapons. The weapons which had been put into the lorries had uh, been taken away and stored under military control. So they assembled on the square in Collinstown in the morning and they met a gentleman called Jack Duffy from Monaghan. Now, he was Owen O'Duffy. Uh, he was a, a former engineer with Monaghan County Council and he was their new commissioner. He was also a very experienced IRA leader in the north. Uh, and O'Duffy uh, told them that they were now the unarmed Garda and they were going to go out into the countryside armed only with their moral purpose and their mandate from the people, but they wouldn't have any guns and their job was to restore law and order. It didn't go down very well initially, um, but it was a calculated decision. These guys, if you give them weapons, uh, they're going to be a threat. So let's turn uh, necessity to advantage. They recognised that there was this wonderful concept in England and Wales and Scotland of the unarmed policemen acting as the, in that great expression of uh, one of 
historian of English policing, I can't think of his name, but the policeman was a civilian in uniform, uh, keeping order by his moral authority, uh, with the moral authority of the community. So the guards were told, this is basically, now this is your job, lads. Um, and uh, an awful lot of them, who, of course, as I say, who were experienced in the use of firearms, experienced in, 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 in military terms, they said, no, this is not for us. We're off. We're, 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 we're out of here. So I think that initial cohort uh, went down to around 600 men. Uh, the, the others just took off. A lot of them went to America, joined the police forces in America. Some of them, interestingly enough, went off to Palestine, joined the Palestine police force. Um, but those who were left became the kind of core of, if you like, the second wave of the Garda Shilkona, which was now the unarmed Garda Shilkona. And with O'Duffy as commissioner um, and uh, Walsh, who had been a part of um, Collins's original committee, the XRIC man, he was actually a cousin of O'Duffy's as well. Um, he was the deputy commissioner. Um, they, 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 they set up, they set up the, the new force. They started recruitment, training, um, uh, basically giving these untrained men some basic training in law, police procedure, um, and uh, dispatching them out around the country. And that really is how we got the unarmed Garda of today. It is a fascinating yarn, all right, because as you said, <laughs> there's a certain amount of retrospective spin, to put it oh, that way, in terms yeah. of how it came. Yeah, yeah. And O'Duffy, yeah. And, O'Duffy and the Free State Government, you know, the uh, O'Higgins and, and Cosgrave and Blythe and people like this, I mean, they realised the propaganda potential of it. And, you know, they, uh, O'Duffy, O'Duffy went off to a police conference internationally in New York the following year and talked at great length about the wonderful... Uh, the wonderful advantage of having an honour. And, and it was advanced as evidence, if you like, of the credibility and the maturity of an Irish free state because English propaganda, British propaganda had always argued, look, these people can't be left to look after themselves. They're uncivilised. They're savage. They'll start killing each other. And there was a civil war which proved that a lot of that was true. And out of the ashes of civil war, suddenly you get this extraordinarily, if you like, uh, enlightened concept of young men uh, who go down around the countryside, bringing peace to the countryside with the moral authority. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Very interesting how that came about, but it should be said, I suppose, as well, Connor, that the subsequent 50 years, the first 50 odd years of the new free state justified to a large extent an unarmed police force because crime wise and that in terms of serious crime, as we know it, in terms of serious crime as it was in more developed societies, was not a major feature here. And I suppose that was also the period during which 
the, the Gardaí began to have a very unique relationship with the public at large. One, I think, that we take for granted, but that is not a feature necessarily of police forces in other Western countries. Yeah, that's correct. Um, you see, it, it was actually, it was, it was, it was very good, it was very good government, if you like, and, and very clever. The, 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 the unarmed guards went out into the countryside. Mostly they occupied former RIC barracks, you know, which were in a pretty bad state of repair. A lot of them had been bombed and burned. But gradually they got settled in. Uh, for a while, the National Army was deployed across the country. So, um, if you like, the, the army looked, the, the army was there as a military presence. So the guards got on, as you say, with civil policing, the kind of things that, you know, um, somebody's dog is worrying sheep and somebody is, 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 is trespassing on land. And of course, enforcement of the licensing act, the licensing laws was hugely important because there was no order on any of that. And pochine making was on an industrial scale. And it was, a lot of it was bad pochine. A lot of people were dying, suffering health injury, health problems from it. But what was very interesting was that as the army withdrew, and of course there was a huge reduction in the size of the army from 1925 onward, the guards were now settling into these little towns and villages. And it was actually ideal. You had young men that were in their 20s. By definition, they were young men of good health. They were athletic. A lot of them were very keen to get involved in local sport, hurling, Gaelic, handball. A lot of them would have been... Um, uh, would have knowledge of Irish culture, singing, music, dancing. So they became very much part of the, if you like, the cultural infrastructure and the social infrastructure. And then, of course, um, they were very eligible as well. So they became quite a, a focus of attraction for, for matrimony. And we're all entirely male as well, of course, we forget <laughs> that these they days. Were. So Mary... Marrying a guard was, was, it was you know, you could do, you could do a lot worse. Um, if you got a sergeant, I mean, you were, you were, you were away. Um, in my mother's case, she got a superintendent. I think she never quite realised how, how, how good life could be. Um, so you had, you had all of this, um, you had this gradual integration. The fact that they weren't armed did play a part in that. It, it should not be dismissed each equally, it should not be overestimated. Um, you know, the the RIC were armed, but that didn't prevent the RIC from being well integrated with the people either. And the and RIC men were regarded as a good catch as well, and they were welcome if a if a if an RIC man was good on the fiddle or if he was a good Irish dancer, he was as welcome as anybody else. You know, in the you know at the crossroads. Um, so. There was there was that, um, as you say, that rather unique integration between police and uh, and 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 the community, uh, and it was it worked very very well. They all, they also had you know there, there were there were there were rules and regulations on it. Like if you married in, you moved. So if you were a guard, we'll say for the sake of argument, in Galway, and you married a woman in the village, well then you would be moved somewhere else. Uh, that caused a lot of resentment, but in actual fact. It, probably did more good you know it meant that guards would be not serving in places where they had blood connections to the community but but they had cultural connections and political connections to the community yeah and as we say that evolved over the first 50 years i suppose some of the portrayals that really um 
showed the role of the guard, and I think in particular John McGahern, uh, as he wrote in his novel The Barracks, and I think he later wrote about uh, on a personal capacity about his own father being a guard. That model of a, of a guard, I think, very much typified it in in very rural agrarian society. But we move it on. We're talking about the outbreak of the troubles in the north and the the political reaction down here, the fear. It would certainly seem some might suggest to the point the paranoia of the the government down here that things would spill over, and suddenly you have a huge new alien challenge to the Gardaí down here. And a lot of people would suggest that in certain aspects of the force that what evolved from that point defined the guards, and I'm thinking in particular, you might have seen the recent um, the recent series in RT, Crimes and Confessions, about the heavy gang as they were known and, and, and how that... How that some people would suggest that 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 led to problems going back going on for twenty or thirty years after that. So, would I be right in saying, Connor, that t- to some extent everything that evolved from nineteen seventy changed the character of the Gardaí in that respect? Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, what happened? What started in the late nineteen sixties, sixty eight, sixty nine, when the North blew up, was a huge challenge to the guards, and it did uh, actuate significant changes in values and in structures and in policies. And I think it's important to remember, though, that it, 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 it wasn't just something that happened then. I mean, the, 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 if you like, the politicization of the guards and the, the putting of the guards into their security role. You mentioned at the beginning that the guards are unique among police forces, and this is a very important point that they actually are both the civil police and the National Security Service. There's no other country in the world that I'm aware of where that actually is the case. Um, 19, early 1920s, the unarmed guards did succeed in pacifying most of the country, but there were parts that they didn't pacify. And as early as 1925, the government had established armed units within the guards. So special branches that became known uh, was established in 1925. Actually, it 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 it, it first it was first deployed in County Leitrim, uh, and then it was gradually spread all over the country. So, by 19 by 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 the outbreak of World War Two, every part of the country had every every guard the division had a small group of special branch detectives, usually a detective sergeant and four or five detective guardi. They were armed. Uh, and they were deployed among the unarmed guards. Nineteen End of the 1960s, when the North began, that's all that there was. There was, there was a D-sergeant and, a, and a, a couple, three, three or four detective guards in each division. Clearly, they hadn't. I mean, it, it was, it was, it was, there were no match for what was now coming out of Northern Ireland for a, a well-armed, well-motivated, well-organised and well-led uh, organisations of, 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 of paramilitaries, not just the provisional IRA, but also at that stage, uh, official IRA, INLA, uh, one or two other splinter groups, Serra in particular, which was responsible for the first guard the murder of, of the Troubles. Um, so... The, the 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 initial impact on the guards was was it was it was it was it 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 was 
it was a thunderbolt. And you also have to remember that at this time, the age profile of the guards had actually changed too. Um, almost all members of the of the guards at that stage were then in their 50s or their 60s, uh, some in their 40s, but very, very few young men. And uh, the whole generation of men who had joined in the 1920s were now men in their 50s and 60s. And um, they hadn't got the energy, they hadn't got the resources, they hadn't got the training, they hadn't got the equipment, they hadn't got the leadership um, to uh, to contend with, uh, with what was thrown at them uh, by the outbreak of political uh, violence. And of course, on the back of political violence, you also had uh, the emergence of organized non-political crime and the you know the, the that 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 substratum of crime which was always there in society primarily in Dublin but also in some other places notably Limerick to a lesser degree Cork um where the older generation of criminals in these and there were mainly criminal families criminal groups they were content with you know robbing gas meters and you know, snatching money out of post offices and suddenly now they began to realise that if you had a gun and a car, you could go to a bank and instead of walking away with 20 quid out of a gas meter, you could walk away with £20,000 in cash. So crime also, organised crime as we now know it emerged. So yeah, 1960s into the 1970s, I mean, it was it was an avalanche that, um, and as you say, out of this came uh, a, a clumsy... Uh, clumsy and, 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 and dangerous response, which was the heavy gang. Uh, and that gave rise to the succession of scandalous events that took place, um, starting with, with, I suppose, the, the heavy gang's exploits against subversive criminals and then moving on to uh, appalling, appalling episodes like the Kerry Babies. Yeah, and of course, I suppose it's just to point out those who were specifically involved in the Kerry Babies would say they weren't part of any heavy gang, but um, there were certainly controversies in terms of, of cases like that that never had any proper explanation. The other thing that arises there, Connor, is the relationship between the police force and its political masters. And, you know, one school of thought would have it that at that time, because the uh, the body politic to some extent felt the state being under threat. They gave a certain free rein to the Gardaí and that in turn induced a sense of impunity in terms of the Gardaí and how they conducted themselves and that that was never recovered and that there was a, a, a less oversight, to put it that way, or less willingness among uh, the government of the day to interfere in the Gardaí thereafter and whether that was a positive or a negative thing. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, there was a recognition on the part of successive governments that the guards, if you like, they were the thin blue line that stood between uh, the state and anarchy. And I don't think there's any exaggeration in that. I think that if the guards didn't do what they did, if they hadn't displayed the courage and the resolution and the um, determination to do their duty, I think it's entirely possible that um, our democratic institutions could have been damaged and challenged and 
possibly even overthrown. I don't want to exaggerate it. But, you know, when you consider what was happening, that, you know, there were assassinations, there were prison breakouts, um, uh, there was uh, chaos and disorder in towns, and there were parts of the country where, at the whim of... number of Gardaí murdered as well. Gardaí were murdered in the execution of their duty. Um, members of the Oireachtas were threatened, and in one case, Billy Fox assassinated. Uh, ambassador uh, Ewart Biggs of the United Kingdom, the British ambassador, was murdered in Dublin. Um, you know, that, that, these are the kind of threats that, that any democratic government has to take very, very seriously. And the guards stood between the state and that uh, activity. And I don't think, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think it's in any way um, being uh, blinkered to say that this society owes the guards big time for what they did in those years. Um, and as I said, they did it against a background of poor equipment, bad training, often bad leadership. The political dynamic with the guards was interesting. I mean, that, that dynamic is there and it is all, it always will be there. It isn't just an Irish thing. Um, government and the police, they cover each other's backs. And, uh, you know, it, you'd be very hard put to find an example of where a, a democratic government has, if you like, um, uh, Dropped, dropped its police force into it. They don't do that. It's understood that, that there's a very high level of tolerance for police misconduct, um, even in the most egregious conduct that you saw among Gardaí uh, from the 1970s onward. Uh, nobody, uh, none, of the, none of the guards involved in these controversial things was adversely affected in their careers. Uh, indeed, uh, most of them were promoted uh, and uh, lived to draw their pensions. Uh, and this in an organisation where, you know, guards would be sacked, but they would be sacked for other reasons. You know, for example, if, uh, you know, even even in recent memory, you had guards uh, sacked on grounds of their sexuality, uh, on the basis of their relationships. Um, but if you were a guard and if you um, if you broke the rules in terms of, handling of prisoners, taking statements, investigating, you could be pretty sure that the state was not going to be hard on you. Um, the judges, in fairness to the judges, again, they did particularly in later years uh, confront the more egregious instances of Garda behaviour. Uh, in particular, the late Adrian Hardiman, um, Judge Hardiman, was very uh, outspoken to that. Other judges earlier in the 70s and 80s, I mean, they were they 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 turned the blind eye and um, uh, you know not least of all I think if you're looking for judicial how do I put this delicately uh, tolerance beyond an acceptable degree if only to look at, at at in your own part of the world make at the the Kerry babies and the report by the late uh, Mr Justice Lynch you know which had more holes in it than a than a than a sieve absolutely and the Salins case there's a succession of judges there that seem to be tolerant. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I think that things have moved on from there. The judges are much more, the judges now are, they're on message. And, you know, other measures have taken place. The the, the advent of the Garda Ombudsman, even though I say so myself, has affected a significant improvement in Garda behaviour. And, uh, 
you know, I, I remember when I was in, in, in the Ombudsman, we used to have people come in to talk to the staff from time to time. I remember Peter McVerry coming in, you know, and he, explaining to us how the advent of the Garda Ombudsman had, had just resulted in a huge reduction in the numbers of young men coming in to him, complaining of being beaten by the guards. Uh, the very fact of its existence changed that. Um, the Garda management, and in particular, I think, under Drew Harris, has taken a very stringent view of, of, of misconduct. And, um, you know, guards who break the rules or operate outside the rules, though, I won't say they're always at high risk, but they're certainly at much higher risk than they were in times gone by. Yeah, as you say, I never, and of course, I suppose that some people would say that historically, the Ombudsman, as you were in the first one, Connor, it was very late being set up and it was only set up ultimately as a result of the latest of a series of, of scandals which occurred in Donegal in the late 90s, which led to tribunal by Frederick Morris, who, who gave a devastating series of reports and the Ombudsman grew out of that and we're, we're on up as far as today. Um, do you think the Gardaí today enjoy the same relationship with the population at large? Um, it's very difficult to, to answer that. Um, the relationship between every organ of public service and the community has changed. Uh, Urbanisation, communications, um, accountability, all, all, all of these, all of these have, 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 have changed. Um, whether you're dealing with the Department of Social Protection, or you're dealing with, uh, you know, a utility company or a bank or whatever, think things have changed. Things have changed for the guards. Yes, um, you know, the 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 smaller stations are closed. Uh, the patrolling guard on the beat is the thing of the past. Uh, I personally do not buy into the, the the received wisdom that this was so very very important. And I, I think it's it, it was an anachron a Victorian anachronism which really doesn't apply much anymore. There's constant call for more guards on the beat. There's nothing more useless than a fellow walking up and down the street with his hands in his pockets, um, you know. Um, but uh, relationships have changed in many ways. People, I think, uh, they're less trusting. And I think there's a degree of um, empirical evidence. Some of these surveys show that the guards are less trusted than they were. But it is interesting still. I mean, you find that you find that in in rural communities, the guards are still extremely well respected. They are still regarded as good neighbours. Uh, they they're welcomed into people's families, and they are of course very very active, and they're very welcomed in sporting organisations and in community activity. I, I I can see that. I mean, I, I, I live uh, now in in, uh, in rural Galway and I'd be aware of many parts of Galway where you have guards who are very, very active in the, uh, in the community in all sorts of different ways. Like, I'll give you a very good example. Um, uh, in the old days, guards would be, you know, yeah, they, they, they kind of, they, they, were, they were involved in the community almost by default. But I was struck recently here, I was talking to someone who was involved in suicide prevention here in Galway. And uh, she was talking about the um, task forces that they have around 
around the county and the guards are in there, you know, and the local guards are very much involved. They're the front, they're the frontline responders. They're also involved in prevention. So they're involved in the community, but in different ways. They're not, they're not sort of standing at the crossroads um, or going down to the parish hall to the Cayley, uh, but they are involved in different ways. And um, it is a, it is a huge strength that they have and a huge value that they have. Um, and, you know, almost unknowingly, I think they kind of cherish that and they value it and they cultivate it. Um, there is, of course, I mean, there there are formalised community relations departments in Garda headquarters and there are people at local level whose job it is to develop community relations. But ultimately, it does come down to the personality and the integrity and the values of the men and women who make up individual guards, who are individual guards and and their ability to relate to their neighbours and their family and the people they do business with, by and large, I think they're pretty good. Yeah, I suppose, finally, Conrad, in terms of reflecting on it, we're often, um, we've a tendency in various aspects of life, I think, in this country to think we're the greatest or the worst at various things. But I suppose in the round, when you look at the Gardaí, and I've, I've been, some of the work I've done have been critical of aspects of them, but in the round, in terms of the, their role in society and how they've evolved, uh, if you look at it in a, an international sphere, uh, and I mean all aspects of it, they haven't done too badly a job. No, I think you're right. And um, I think there's many uh, a country would look at, at Ireland and, 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 and be envious of it. Um, there, there, are, there are some things that we haven't done as well as we should have in regard to policing. The, you know, the, the potential of the of the Garda Reserve has never been properly tapped. Um, if you go to, you know, an English village or you go to a French village, you will find volunteer reserve police officers. We don't do that, which I think is a terrible pity. Uh, you know, we'll have, we've got volunteer fire people, firefighters, we've got volunteer ambulance people, we've got volunteer uh, volunteer social social services, all that kind of stuff. There's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't have uh, volunteer police officers as well and that's it's a very big phenomenon worldwide um the the um we we there's a big loss of potential there but the relations with the community by and large are good the crime detection figures are pretty good the guards have shown themselves nimble and adaptable um to, as 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 new problems emerge i i'd have i'd 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 have i'd have um I'd have some concerns at this stage about the upcoming legislation which is being brought through the Eructus at the moment, uh, the Policing Security and Community Safety Bill, which comes out of the recommendations of the Policing Commission, which I was on for a while and I left it because I didn't feel it was going the right direction. But my fear is that the, uh, the implementation of this new legislation will roll back um, some of the uh, useful, necessary oversight safeguards that there have been. The policing authority will be stood down. Uh, we're going to have some new policing board within the Garda itself. But the, the, the oversight role which the policing authority has exercised, first of all under Josephine Feely, laterally under Bob Collins, 
has held the Garda's feet close to the fire very effectively and I think it's going to be a loss and I'm not sure that what's coming after it is going to be as good. I'm not sure what's in store for the Garda Ombudsman. Um, there is talk about it being given extra powers. I don't see those extra powers. Um, I, you know, Much has been made of the fact that it's going to have power to investigate so-called civilians. It always had that power. Um, um, I don't think it's getting any significant extra powers. What the Ombudsman really needs is a whole lot more people uh, and it needs a whole lot more cooperation from Garda headquarters. So nothing in the legislation is providing for that. So I have a fear that at the moment that we may have reached a high watermark, maybe about 2016, 2017, 2018, in which there's been a very strong and very effective level of Garda oversight, which I think has been very good for the guards and very good for the community. I'm afraid that we may be moving away from that and that does concern me. Yes, indeed. And that is something we're going to have to keep an eye on in the coming months because there's um, various voices on uh, both within the Gardaí and outside it, like yourself, who've contrasting concerns, I think, in that respect. And it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Connor, Connor Brady, thank you very much for joining us today and that very interesting insight and history into Ungardi Shikana in the year of its centenary. Thanks, Michael. My pleasure. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening, folks. We'll talk again next week. And in the meantime, go easy. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.